And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. Hey friends, it's Kathy Norman Peterson. We have such a great episode for you today as we delve into what it means when we say we are an immigrant church. Jane and I had the chance to sit down with Phil Anderson, longtime covenant historian, to talk about how early covenanters identified as an immigrant church. Phil brings such a wealth of knowledge of our roots and the nuances of our identity, and we're so grateful he took the time to speak with us. We also got to speak with Danny Martinez, superintendent of the Central Conference and Child of the Covenant, who shares some of his own experiences and reflections as a Latino covenanter and a 1.5 generation immigrant himself. Welcome, Phil Anderson. We're so excited to have you with us today. Phil is a longtime covenant historian, longtime uh, professor at North Park Theological Seminary. Phil, how long ago did you retire? I retired in 2013 after 34 years. We're calling today's episode, We Are an Immigrant Church. And Phil, we wanted to hear from you um, about our origins as immigrants. We identify the covenant as an immigrant church. We throw that term around a little bit now um, because that's a deep part of our identity, but I don't know if we always understand what we're saying when we say that. Our first question for you is how, like, how did early covenanters in North America understand themselves that way? Like, were they, they were immigrants, our founders were immigrants. So how did they, how did they identify as an immigrant church in those early days? Well, I think that's both a simple and a complex question because it involves the life stories of people above all uh, individuals because any person in in the experience of migration from one place to another as an immigrant, you have a singular story of that person. And then that connects to the group as well uh, of the place of origin. And the uh, expressions that they have together, which is where the church is, of course, as one of the many institutions um, uh, established by immigrants, but also it's what they bring with them uh, in kind of an uprooted way from where they've been and transplanting it to to a new place. So this is a universal human story. And I think for the covenant, church to be able to tell its whole whole story from its point of origin to the present day uh, enriches it for all of us because it it is one story, but it has many, many layers. So in the case of the founders of the Covenant Church, they came from Sweden. They were part of what's called the Great Migration from around 1830, 1840 to 1930. Uh, about 1.3 million Swedes arrived. And that was a significant portion of a country that was not regulating those who were leaving. And um, it's estimated that a quarter of the Swedish people who were born between 1850 and 1900 died in North America. 
So we're talking about something pretty significant that they were experiencing at home, what would lead them to leave and what they would find here and what the religious expressions would be. The covenant was pretty much a young people's movement. There were older pastors and there had been a covenant church formed in Sweden in 1878. Here we're 1885. And uh, they brought pastoral experience with them and some education. But we were really a young people's movement. And most of our pastors were young. Many of our people were young. They came as young single immigrants. And by this period of time, it's also pretty urban uh, compared to some other groups, not just rural. And so neighborhoods, ethnic enclaves, and the the attempts to um, bind together as a community because you're learning English, but your native tongue is still Swedish. And in these communities, there's a kind of institutional completeness. You may form schools, you might form churches, you have a rigorous press and all the rest. So there's a lot of energy behind what led up to the formation of the Covenant Church here. And I think the church as a whole probably experienced what individual immigrants did as well. And that's a kind of liminality. You are really in between places. You've left your home. You're hoping to find a new home. And being relatively young, you have your whole future ahead of you. Few thought about going back. So about 20% of Swedish immigrants did return uh, to their place of birth, and, and that is where they died. But the majority, they looked forward. They were institution and community builders, and they relied on leaders who sort of came out of the grassroots. So the importance of education, being recognized within your community as someone who can lead, and give voice to the experiences people are having. And their own background in the Covenant Church, most came from relatively poor backgrounds. Many of them were rural peasants, though they may have had the equivalent of a third or fifth grade education. They were a highly literate people. They read and uh, they began to write and publish books and began magazines and periodicals, but that experience of being in between in a culture that's trying to tell you who you must become to be an American. In the late 19th century, there was a whole lot of what you might call zealous nationalism in the United States. And all kinds of people could experience that, no matter what your background may have been. But you were expected to conform. And the church was a place where uh, you felt less of that because you were bound in worship and music and um, your communal expressions by that which you held in common. Uh, kind of a framework you can think about this that uh, sociologists have used, and that is that every immigrant group, every migrant person or group goes through a process that's maybe has three stages. And the first is differentiation. To find your own security and identity as a person and a group 
you're naturally dif differentiating yourself from the dominant culture. And in this case, in the United States, the dominant culture is no singular thing. It's coming at you in all different ways. But the United States was being transformed by immigration in the 19th century. And the Swedes were a big part of that, where they settled. But you are differentiating. And this takes time. And that's when you're building your institutions and thinking about how you're going to raise your children. There's a second stage that begins to move beyond that, at the, that you might call accommodation. These are problematic words to think about something like assimilation. So, you know, that old melting pot theory. So in the U.S., you eventually get melted down. You're, no, it doesn't work that way. So you're accommodating to um, uh, your new home and you're negotiating with that culture in your own communities in the church, in the society, in the public schools. And it be, should be pointed out that almost all children of Swedish immigrants went to the public schools. They were moving quickly. They learned English. And even the immigrants themselves, and this may sound surprising to our listeners, but in the 19th and early 20th centuries, there was only one immigrant group that learned English faster than Swedes. And that was the Dutch, which really surprises me because the Dutch have such a strong ethnic, at times almost insular identity. So this uh, period of accommodation is, is really experienced by children of the immigrants while they're watching their parents differentiate, negotiate, and look to the future because life was a often hard for many of them, and their hope was for what it could be for their children and their, their grandchildren and beyond. So this all takes time. And then the third point in this process, and this isn't real scientific, but I think each group could talk about this, is what you might call identification. And that's when you finally get to the point where um, you can begin to state in more formal ways who we are as a group, what are our core values, how can we name them so that those who grew up with them or know them because of their own background can actually give language to it so that it connects with their lives. Or for the newcomer uh, who may join the church, in our case here, or understand, there are these identifying markers. And I would say, the Covenant Church follows this pattern pretty clearly, where the period of uh, differentiation while immigration is going on, which finally tapers off in the 1920s. So the Covenant grows with 19th century immigrants and then early 20th century immigrants. The ones who came earlier were often from rural communities. They were looking for economic opportunities. There was a population explosion. You didn't have much of a future if you were a young man or a young woman in Sweden for most. The second kind of phase that um, we experienced later came from young people who came for professional reasons. They had some education, they had vocations, or they were now clearly a part of um, 
uh, a labor market which had developed in Sweden. Up until World War I, uh, you're easing into that accommodation phase because now the children are getting older and they're wondering, am I going to stay? Uh, what binds me? How does language work? Uh, does this seem provincial to me and so forth? And I think for the Covenant Church, that took us into the 1930s and maybe the end of the World War II period. And the period of identification would come, I think, post-war, maybe more of a third-generation phenomenon enriched by a church. And this is important to point out. The Covenant Church had been growing with non-Swedish, non-Scandinavian people since the 1930s. This is not a new phenomenon. It began in the 1930s and it intensified through, through uh, our conferences doing the work of home mission. The Northwest Conference did so much more than other conferences at the time. But after the war, um, all those uh, home mission programs expanded, new, new churches were being started. And the denomination finally um, uh, recognized that it needed to be very clear in this work of identification. So it began to produce documents. Who are we? This began in the 1940s, and it had a twofold purpose. One is for those within the tradition who grew up in the tradition, uh, this is how we can talk about who we are. But since the church was growing primarily, not in a biological way, uh, another element of immigration history is that when it comes to the church or ethnic organizations, you lose most of your children. They do not stick around. And the Covenant Church, young families, young immigrants, the majority of their children did not stay in the Covenant Church. So it's growing in other ways. And so you need to have identifying documents um, to give language to that. Or you have to rewrite your constitution like we did in the 1950s. You have to rethink how you're writing confirmation material. Um, and, now, and we haven't talked about the, the uh, transition from Swedish to English yet. That is really an interesting story. Um, but uh, a key part of uh, that people might recognize now is when covenant affirmations came out in the mid-1970s. That was an identifying document. And it's not doctrinal, it's not creedal, it doesn't tell you how to think, uh, what you have to hold to if you're in or you're out or this or that. No, it, it's a series of affirmations that if you're gonna describe what they mean, you have to begin to talk about them. And you have to talk about the history and you have to tell stories because that's the way an identifying doctrine uh, document works. That's not like a doctrinal statement or propositional statements that say, well, if you think this way, like we do, you're welcome. If not, we might have some problems with you. So spread it out, be patient with um, the story of migration and immigration as a universal one, because it's all working its way out within these theories of liminality. And there's a preliminal experience for the immigrant where they're just trying to figure this out. They're like uh, uh, the poet laureate of Arizona, Alberto Rios, has some wonderful poems about immigration, migration. And he says, uh, to be a hyphenated American, 
uh, is to be a, an equation in search of an equal sign. The pressure is, yeah, um, become American. But the way that it works takes time and you long for that equal sign that may or may not come. Um, so once you're in the immigrant experience itself, having crossed borders, which is now a very internal thing, where's home for me? Who am I? Um, a border now has ceased to be a physical place. Again, Alberto Ria said it becomes the act of a thousand imaginations in people. So um, to get to a post-liminal phase, as an anthropologist might talk about it, is not always easy. And it isn't always successful for the immigrant individual because it means somehow you've come to an amicable place of understanding or peace with your present and your past and who you are going forward. So that's kind of a sketch, but, but I want to underscore that um, the Swedish immigration was large and it was significant and traumatic for the country that they had left. It wasn't until about 1900, Sweden figured out we've lost our young people and they've tried to put, then they tried to put the brakes on, peop on people leave leaving. So um, the Covenant Church was born with individuals and families and churches, uh, which became the church, especially, and we can see this in the Covenant, we can trace this. Why were a lot of younger people attracted to the church? Because if you moved to a community, that's where they spoke your language. That's where you could network for jobs. That's where you could find a boarding house or a place to live and, and get your feet on the ground. Maybe that's where you find that significant other you're going, you're going to spend your life with. And in the Covenant Church, if you didn't bring all of this with you, maybe you got converted. Maybe you experienced a renewal experience in your own life, and so now you're putting down your roots in the church. But another caution here, in this large migration, and this is kind of a soft number, but as historians and sociologists have worked on it, maybe 25% of the Swedish immigrant population found its way into a Swedish American church. Now that would be Lutheran, Covenant, Baptist, Methodist, Seventh-day Adventist. There were even some Swedish Presbyterians and Episcopalians. There were Swedish Mormons in this country. So, um, in a way, this large group of, of immigrants who had come from a compulsory society where you were told what you needed to do, by law, you had to be baptized, you had to be confirmed. This was a womb-to-tomb experience, cradle-to-grave. And now in America, you're experiencing freedom. What, do you, what are you going to do with that? Now, maybe through marriage outside the ethnic group, or maybe your own experience among your friends, fighting in World War I, whom you married, whatever it may be, you found your way into another kind of American church, not a Swedish American church. But I think the, the uh, point here is that the majority did not. And so many of our early pastors, they had a strong evangelical impulse anyway, 
But their primary responsibility in that first generation was to minister to their own people and fellow immigrants. Wow. I feel like I learned a lot in that and also resonated a lot with what you shared. I remember when I was younger, we were well acquainted with the church because my mom was always looking for Chinese speaking communities for us to plug into. You had mentioned um, the transition of language from Mm -hmm. Swedish to English, which I really want to hear about that Um, Mm -hmm. because just very fascinated, right? Because I think again, coming from a Taiwanese church, yeah, like we, everything we do is in is you know is bilingual, um, and where we would see a lot of the adult ministries would mainly be in Mandarin, but then our youth and Mm -hmm. children's ministry would all be in English, Um, and then right, and then for our youth, you would maybe see a, a. a hybrid of English and Chinese as our youth are trying to um, kind of like recognize their, their, their two identities of what, whether it's American or, or being Taiwanese. And so, but yeah, so again, um, understanding that in the 1930s, um, it's my understanding that we were transitioning from speaking Swedish to English. Um, so yeah, so what, what did that process end up looking like for the covenant? Yeah, well, it, it's a fascinating question, and you cannot locate it really to any particular period of time, but it begins in earnest in some ways in the 1890s and doesn't fully resolve itself until just before World War II, especially for, for some of our smaller rural churches. So there's some um, elements to this that I think makes the covenant an interesting case study because every immigrant group went through some form of this. Um, let me give you an, a, a little, uh, another piece of um, oh, analytical framework. Uh, there was a famous uh, uh, talk given in the late 1930s, happened to be at Augustana College in Rock Island, by a great American immigration historian. He was one of the first, and incidentally, the earliest American historians of immigration of prominence um, were Swedish and Norwegian in background. That's really interesting. Um, This guy's name was Marcus Lee Hansen. He taught at the University of Illinois. His uh, father was uh, Norwegian, and his mother was Danish. And he gives this lecture called The Problem of the Third Generation Immigrant. And it was published in a little pamphlet and then quickly forgotten until the early 1950s when the anthropologist Margaret Mead found it and thought, oh my, this is really interesting as a conversation starter. And it's since been known as Hansen's Law. And to boil it down, Hansen says, what the second generation wishes to forget, the third generation wishes to remember. So briefly, uh, what he was saying was the first generation, uh, the immigrants are so preoccupied with the new experience, finding work, raising their family, settling down and dealing with all kinds of stuff, uh, including prejudice, uh, which is true for, for every group. And the children are growing up and they're, they're seeing this and kind of watching their parents with their struggle. And uh, say, in the case of the Covenant Church, these are kids going to 
public schools, they're learning English. And since their parents tended to learn English very quickly as well, and this was true in my, my father's family, um, the parents uh, and my grandparents, all of mine were Swedish immigrants. They spoke English at home. They only spoke English at home. But my father was confirmed in Swedish in the 1920s. Uh, worship was in Swedish up to that. So they knew Swedish. And, and the primary way they learned Swedish was overhearing their parents trying to be private when they understood everything <laughs> because, because of the church. Uh, they didn't learn necessarily a sophisticated Swedish, but they knew the dialect of their, where their parents came from. And they learned the basic theological Swedish uh, in confirmation and so on, uh, even though the Sunday school might have been in English. Beginning in the 1890s, many covenant churches had sweet school. So the kids, even little kids up through, well, until you couldn't corral them anymore, you'd haul them down to church on Saturday morning so they'd get Swedish instruction because their parents did not want them to lose the language that was so close to their heart. And the way that you would um, especially speak about the faith, for example, that's why the language issue will persist longer in churches than it will elsewhere um, in, 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 in their cultural experience. So the, the second generation, Hansen says, sees this. And their parents are reluctant often to talk about their experiences and hardship. And the second generation, he says, is therefore not inclined to ask questions. Tell me about where you came from. Tell me about my family. Um, and so they, they kind of want to get on with uh, being American like, like their other peers. And they're dreaming about educational opportunities and whatever it might be. So Hansen says that the third generation comes along, the grandchildren. And all of a sudden, now they're, they're secure in their identity with language, with culture. They have friends all over the place. Uh, they're comfortable. And if they're lucky enough to have their grandparents around, which I didn't, I didn't know any of my grandparents, they're the ones who'll say, Grandma, tell me what it was like. You know, what was it like when you left? Why did you leave? What did you find here? They're just full of questions. And it's a wonderful thing, but maybe there's a danger side to it too, is that you can become, um, to romanticize the immigrant experience, mm -hmm. to have kind of a ethno-filiopietism or whatever you want to call it. Um, and ethnicity therefore becomes important in another way. It's not the defining thing in your life. It may still be there in the foods you eat, the traditions you maintain and so on. But you're not in um, the same place as your grandparents were. And hopefully it'll help you to understand your parents better. So that's a little background. It doesn't work in the same way for every immigrant group. It doesn't work at all for some ethnic groups. So Hansen's Law is a discussion starter. So with, with that as kind of a background, the kind of way this unfolds for the Covenant Church is that it's young people, the children of the immigrants, are um, becoming fairly comfortable with language. And they themselves then to tr begin to try to negotiate the two cultures that they're living in. 
um, they're not living in, even their parents, they're no longer living in a Swedish culture. And they're not living in an American culture because after all, what exactly is that? They're living in a Swedish American culture. And so for early covenanters and their children, this is a process that takes them up to into the 1920s. And kind of this, this cultural unity of, of a Swedish immigrant experience, you, you can call it Swedish America. The heyday of Swedish America began to end in the early 1920s. So the covenant is going to be already dealing with their children, but also a way going forward because you simply can't maintain um, uh, a Swedish America. So um, around World War One, and and you can see this in the documents, covenant leaders are now becoming very concerned about the transition because they realize the need to move forward. And yet most covenant leaders who were in the ministry were kind of still uncomfortable preaching in English. They, they, they'd still rather preach in uh, uh, Swedish. And the covenant did a survey in 1917 that found that something like 72% of covenanters still were most comfortable if preaching was in Swedish. If you went to the seminary, and this was true into the 1940s, it was kind of expected, you, you have to be able to preach in Swedish in some way. So, so e even as part of the seminary curriculum, you, you had to study Swedish because you might be going out to a congregation where you need to relate to older people who are not comfortable with language. Um, it's kind of a, a saying that if there's anything that killed Swedish in the churches, it was requiring young seminarians to learn how to <laughs> preach Swedish in these congregations. And then the folks were sitting out in the pews, shaking their heads and wondering, what is this person saying? I don't even understand it. Um, so after World War I, especially, um, the, the pressure is, is kind of on. And um, maybe later we could talk a little bit about the press because your covenant communications and, and covenant publications is a big part of this story of transition. Um, the original covenant companion uh, appeared in 1920, I think for the first time, and it was an all English publication and it was geared towards young people, younger people. And it was a really well done pub periodical publication. And it's fun to go back and read the articles then in the 20s, because there you have the children of immigrants, many of whom have university degrees or they're, they're going to school and they are arguing among themselves. Do we have to get rid of Swedish or can we keep it? And they're on both sides of the fence. Now, these are people who are fully committed to moving forward with their lives uh, into American culture. But what they're debating is, um, as David Nyvall, the first president of North Park, asked, aren't we better if we know two languages rather than one? Aren't we um, enriched by knowing more than one artistic tradition, literary tradition, whatever it may be? 
So it was an argument of um, holding on to something, not for its own sake, but because it was somehow part of their identity as well. Uh, to be a Swedish American or an American was obviously going to be different for them. So it's interesting to watch that generation debate this question of transition. Um, another um, insight, I think, is to remember that for a church that started as a primarily young people's movement, it's going to take a long time for it to get old. Now, if you compare the Covenant Church to the Lutherans, the Augustana Lutherans, they were generally here 25 years earlier. They were working through these issues earlier. In 1908, the Augustana Lutheran Church actually developed its own organization called um, the uh, uh, Association of English Churches. They had their own group because they were fighting for English churches, English language. The covenant never had that. So instead, what our congregations are trying to do is, um, do we stay with Swedish language? Do we go bilingual and do some in English and, and some in Swedish? Um, and, um, and, and that's just going to take time because if you become a pastor when you're in your 20s, in the 1880s, by the time you're retiring, you're pushing well into the 20th century. So um, 1921 was the first uh, English language hymnal. The um, denomination officially adopts English as its language in 1929, but it doesn't begin publishing its annual reports in English for another two or three years. Um, you can see how the transition is, is, is slowly taking place. The uh, Covenant's uh, uh, main publication, uh, which didn't come about till 1915, the official publication when the church was 30 years old, was called Verbundets Vakutidning. And in 1934, it merged with the Old Covenant Companion, of uh, and became the Covenant Weekly. And the Covenant Weekly remained bilingual until 1954, though the portions of it that were Swedish kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then in 1956, they picked up the old Covenant Companion again and started a publication that came out every two weeks or so. So this transition is, is going to take time. And it's taking place at every level of the church's life. Um, the Sunday schools had already moved to English when worship had not. Uh, I talked about losing the majority of, of, of your children. So anyone who would say, well, the covenant was really tribal. No, tribal uh, ethnic groups don't deal with their children that way. Um, we lost a lot of our children, and we were very keen about evangelizing others, the non-Swedes, wh whatever, whatever it might be. Um, so um, it, it, ta it takes time, though it's changing kind of 
from the bottom up with, with that younger generation. Sunday school will move to English, confirmation will move to English, maybe you'll move to a bilingual um, kind of worship setting. Um, so uh, it was hard to let it was hard to let go of. But I think we need to see it as a natural progression. And every immigrant group, every ethnic group will deal with the language transition differently. So if it was in some ways painful for the covenant church, for various reasons we can say, we always got, have to remember this was a group that learned English more quickly than anyone at the time outside of the Dutch. So they're very comfortable in English elsewhere, having a much harder time dealing with it um, in the church. And, and I think it has a lot to do with um, uh, this older immigrant population. Um, though many of them quite comfortable in English, they're processing their own life experience. So many of the hymns in the common tradition they grew up with are hymns of pilgrimage. They're, they're, they're stories of being on the move mm -hmm. and, and the travail that can come with that. I mean, we have a tradition that in the 19th century wrote hymns about anxiety. I don't know of many other churches that could do that. And I think in a pandemic era, those are good hymns maybe <laughs> to be looking at again and, and singing because that that's very real. And so, especially when you got to that older generation of immigrants, I remember hearing this as a kid. You know, when, when you sang those hymns, you sang a verse and you cried a verse. And is because you're connecting your own past, exper <clears throat> past experience um, in the present. Danny Martinez is here with us to talk about being an immigrant church. Danny, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have a conversation with you. Thank you for having me. What what's your perspective and your experience of being an immigrant church in the covenant? Yeah, you know I can I can tell you uh, it, first of all it's so great to have uh, to be able to talk both of you Kathy and Jane. Um, I, I am a child of the covenant. I started the covenant when I was eighteen years old, and our church uh, was um, adopted into the covenant. There was a church plant in the north side of Chicago that that was mainly comprised of, of uh, uh, Puerto Ricans, Guatemalans, Central Americans, and Mexicans. And uh, you know, most people don't realize that Latinos are also multicultural because we have 22 different countries that, even though they speak the general Spanish, uh, they don't always, uh, you know, understand each other or get along. And so, being a multicultural church already. Uh, when we became a part of the, the covenant, I wasn't really in agreement of doing that because, you know, denominations tend to uh, uh, it be difficult sometimes to deal with. But I was 18. I didn't know any better. <laughs> and uh, we, our pastor was going to North Park at the time. His name is Misael Nacimiento. And he was a church planter at the time. And uh, got us connected with our affirmations and what the covenant stood for and what was dear to us. And the deep desire that the covenant had of becoming a multicultural church. So uh, Latinos uh, are used to being the object of mission and uh, to be invited into a place where we're not just objects of mission, but part of the mission was just really important to us. 
And of course, you know, Alipe, which is the, the National Latino uh, Association of Churches, um, had a good presence here. We had about seven churches in the Chicago area at the time. And uh, these churches were very tight-knit. And uh, we, we were attracted to the covenant as a relational body. The covenant was putting a lot of effort into making sure that we were relating to one another and we were, uh, you know, that we, we were looking at, at, at different people, uh, mainly Latinos, which is a, a, one of the biggest minorities at that time and now the biggest minority in the country. And, and, and wanting to really reach out. So I, I was the beneficiary because I spoke English uh, to be invited to places like Chick. I was, uh, you know, my, my heavy, heavy metal band uh, in Spanish, Spanish Christian heavy metal band called Allegoria was invited to play at Chick 91 in, in the, uh, Bloomington, Indiana. And, you know, I got connected with the youth pastors. I was doing youth ministry at my home church. And, you know, you know, started playing for midwinter and uh, gather and, and, and other events like the feast. I don't know if you remember, we had something called the feast. And uh, getting connected was really an important thing for me as someone that was uh, 1.5 generation. I wasn't born here, but I was brought here as a child uh, to a, a larger church. And I have to tell you that the, the covenant has been an incredible place for me because I have met incredible people that are doing ministry well, that uh, I, I got to ask questions to. I was able to, to, uh, to ask advice and be formed and shaped by all these amazing people. If I gave you the list of all the people that have invested in me, I, I, we wouldn't have enough time. But that's, that's, that's what the covenant has done. And this is why the covenant has attracted a lot of uh, immigrant churches, you know, and, and, um, and it's really great because, you know, we, like most local churches that want to become multicultural churches, they don't really understand what that is. And, and I would say that the covenant loves being a multicultural church, even though we don't know quite yet how to be a multicultural church. And that's not a criticism. That's just uh, in describing our reality. We really struggle with it, but I think that we genuinely want to work at it and we want to be a part of that. I think I, I went very far from your question. But that, that, that's what it was like for me to be a part of an immigrant church here in Chicago that, that catered to people that were not always uh, uh, catered to, helped, shaped, discipled. Uh, but there was, as in Latin America and in Africa, you know, the Holy Spirit has been moving really powerfully through the Latina church. Most of us come from a neo-Pentecostal background. And... Uh, the covenant has allowed us to, you know, bring that in. You know, I have never seen so many people uncomfortable with all the hugging that we we do, and you know, <laughs> all, all the dancing that we started to do. This is before, you know. Now it's normal to see someone dance at midwinter. That wasn't the case, you know, thirty five years ago, and uh, and it, and it was awesome, you know, because you could see, you know, there's a thousand people in the in the in the auditorium. And where's Danny? Oh, there he is. You know, he can be. <laughs> Found in the middle, but also the the emphasis that we've put on women of color in immigrant churches has also been a, a huge, refreshing uh, thing that has attracted a lot of our churches. So, uh, and I also fear that we that, that we lose some of that because we we bring our own perspective and our, we bring our own values and we bring our own hopes for the covenant, and uh, you know, giving up power is a it's a it's a difficult thing. 
for the local church as well as for our denomination. You said that Latino churches are really multicultural Mm -hmm. often, right? And so I'd like to hear your thoughts on what can the rest of the covenant learn about being a multicultural church from Latino churches? Well, you know, Latino churches, you can find uh, is uh, Afro-Latinos, which look, you know, African or, or dark skin, all the way to someone that could be, a, you know, a Euro-Latino, or uh, I don't know if, if that's what they call themselves, but, you know, anywhere from, we have an Afro, Afro-Latino community in Mexico and in Guatemala and in all the coastal countries in the Atlantic. Uh, we, uh, we, you know, we, we have Koreans, we have... Chinese blood in, in, in our, in our, in our, we have a, a huge Chinese population in Guatemala of people that, that left in the 1900s uh, fleeing from the States. Uh, and, and, you know, I have cousins, you know, with, with uh, last name Ling or, or Cheng and, and they're Guatemalans, you know, they're more Guatemalan than me. And, and, and so the Latino culture has never been a monoculture. It, it, it was something that was done for the census where we said, we got to get all these Spanish speaking countries into the same place. And there's where Hispanic comes from, Spanish speaking. And then Latino, we like to use because it's inclusive of Brazil and the Guyanas and, and Haiti and, and some of these other islands. In uh, being 22 different countries, we have our own slang. We have our own, you know, we don't all, all eat tortillas, you know, Mexican. I don't know, in the States, in the 70s, people knew who Puerto Ricans were. In the 80s, everybody was Mexican. You know, I've been Mexican, you know, people think I'm Mexican. And, and you know, it's it's a compliment. You know, I love uh, Mexican brothers and sisters. And then, you know, we all were Colombian in the 90s, you know, because of, of the cartels and all this. So, uh, all to say that because we are uh, so diverse, our pastors have had to learn to preach in, in a way that is conducive to everyone and use a, a, a Spanish that can... Or, you know, be heard and understood for everyone. I tend to go back to being Guatemalan when I when I speak because you know my 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 humor you know was shaped in you know in this in the Guatemalan Spanish. So one of the things that we've done is we really listened for understanding. You know, it's not just you know sometimes we have conversations just to uh, you know the person can stop talking so I can ask something different or I can say something or listen what happened to me. But we've learned to, to really understand each other. In the 80s here in Chicago, the biggest draw in a boxing match that you can have in Humboldt Park was having a, a Puerto Rican fight a Mexican. And because there were this these deep divisions within us, you know, eh, people were some people were thinking we were taking their jobs away, and the immigration was taking some of their jobs away. So you, you people were higher up were really manipulating uh, the different uh, nationalities to to be against each other and pit them against each other. Uh, the church has really done a great healing job in us being able to coexist with one another, no matter what country you're from. And there are countries that are uh, that are very different, like Argentina would be very different than Mexico would be, or people from the islands are very different. And some of us are mestizos, which is, you know, a, a Native American with, with Spaniards, and that's most of Mexico and, and Central America, and part of them is in North part of South America. But we have, uh, a, you know, Afro-Latinos, like I mentioned, in a lot of different countries. So for us, race is not has not been an issue. 
though we've struggled with treating our indigenous people uh, well in, in our own countries. Here in the United States, because we, we tend to want to disciple one another well and really become a family, because it, not everybody has the privilege of, of traveling with their family when they immigrate, uh, we become the family. And that's what has been attractive to the covenant, because you know it, it's, we want to be a family. I don't know that we're a family yet, but we 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 want to be a family, and we want to belong to one another. So I think that's that's a, a, a wonderful thing that the Latino community brings community, and how to do community well because they we do take care of each other. As the covenant, we say we're an immigrant church. How does that define our identity today and speak into our understanding of who we are? I think that we have vilified immigrants as, as people that come here and basically take and not give anything, right? And uh, and we've talked about, you know, a, a just immigration uh, policies that could benefit uh, people that are coming here for, for better reasons, right? I, I know that my family came here because we needed a place where we can have a financial safe future. You know, we did not have that back at home, especially my mother is a, is a divorced wife of, of two kids. So um, I think that as Americans, let's start with being American. We forget that we are immigrants. We forget that we, this, is, this is not where we've belonged. Uh, we, you know, our, our forefathers, our uh, great, 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 great parents it came, grandparents came and established their, their, themselves here. They, and, and we have this ideology that everybody did that, you know, well and with the proper documents and, you know, they were celebrated and all of this. And, and I think it's, it's easy to understand that we've done it well. We want everybody else to do it well. Um, the church, especially our, our culture is, is a covenant church escaping you know, a, a religious persecution in, in Europe and trying to have a place where we can develop good theology, good camaraderie, good community with, with within the ecclesiastic church, the ecclesiastic body. So if, we need to remember that we are a nation of immigrants. So when we have immigrants, yeah, it, it, and it's easy to, to try to not identify as that because you know, this is our country. We don't want anybody to take it, and and we're very, yeah, we're very based on our rights, right? This this is what my right is. And uh, and as Christians, you know, we kind of have a different mandate, right? And um, and recognizing the immigrant and the the people that that have to travel. The United States is not the only place where immigrants are coming to. Immigration is a is a worldwide issue. It's something that's happening all over the world. And um, because the United States has been seen as this beacon of light and hope and a, a place uh, uh, of, of success, people would want to come here and try to have a, a better life here. So as Americans, we need to remember, we are, we, you know, we're not Native Americans. I mean, I'm, I'm only 60% uh, Native American. Uh, and, and this was not my land. I, you know, I was a little further south. Um, so that's one, right? Now, as covenanters, you know, that, um, you know, our Swedish roots are still very prevalent. And some people mourn that we're not Swedish enough anymore. Uh, not, not because we've attracted minorities, I hope. 
but because we've lost some of those elements and those, some of that liturgy and some of that uh, that camaraderie that we had, because uh, being an immigrant church means that you recognize other people and their value and what they they contribute to uh, to to the church, right? And um, I, I often joke about hugging uh, because you know Latinos are, are just very expressive, and I would, when I say Latinos. You know, I don't mean everyone, but I, I mean the majority of that because, as you can tell, there we we have very different uh, 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 people in those twenty-two countries. Being being covenanters and being a nation of immigrants, understanding that also gives us the the biblical perspective that we're not from this world, that uh, this may be our home now, but our our citizenship, Romans says, I think it's in heaven, and that's where our our benefits are going to kick in. <laughs> our 401k is going to be great there. But if we're simply pilgrims here, then that means that we're stewards of whatever we have here. And that also makes us accountable to how our brothers and sisters are, are treated. And we've had, you know, our parents, grandparents did a great job and, you know, they worked hard. They did what they needed to do and, and how we can uh, contribute to the larger good of, uh, of other immigrants as well. So being an immigrant is not a dirty word. And some people are going to feel the conviction because that also means that we're responsible for not closing the door behind us and and allowing other folks to, um, you know, and and of course, you know, with our immigration program and and just how how difficult that is, you know, most people don't understand how, how destroyed that system is and how it hasn't been working for a long time. But on a personal note, uh, my family and I became um, residents and then citizens here because President Reagan in 1986 passed in, uh, something called uh, amnesty, an amnesty program, and we were qualified for that and and stay here. And I'm and I'm glad that I was able to do that because I love this country and and I love my denomination and I feel that I've been beneficial to both the denomination and the country. And, and I believe that many other people have been too, even those that have not been recognized that way. I'm just thinking through um, a couple of the different ways that I feel like the covenant is trying to connect with and support specifically our Spanish speaking churches. And, and Chet is something that came to mind. Could you tell me a little bit more on like how that started? Why, like kind of what the goals were and how that's been? Yeah, you know, it's a wonderful story. Uh, First Cove of L.A. decided to close their doors in the 80s because uh, they were in the middle of downtown and there was a huge expansion there. And I know this because the beneficiary of that was uh, the, the, the ECC of Bell Gardens, which is a mainly uh, immigrant church. They, they were gifted uh, a part of the uh, part of the 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 monies that were that were given for that. And they were able to find a place in, in Bell Gardens and, and buy a church. And, and they're a very strong church still in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles area, Bell Gardens. Uh, Chet came out of the need of, a, in, the, in, 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 our, in the Latino countries, and remember I was a child when I came, but you know I, I do go to Guatemala and, and travel throughout Latin America very much. We have a, a different sense of, of of uh, of ministry uh, paradigm when we are we feel that we have to be called into ministry 
And if we are called into ministry, God will provide the resources. He'll provide the studies. He'll provide everything, right? And that's a very extreme way of doing that, but it's also a poverty-based paradigm because you don't have you don't have money to go to school for a seminary or for a Bible institute. Chet came out of that. Here in the, in the United States, we have the paradigm of like, okay, I'm going to be a pastor. That's not necessarily, but we want it to be a call, but we don't really know because we we basically go to seminary. We get our bachelor's in ministry, then we get our master's in divinity, and now you're a pastor. Even though you haven't pastored one person, you know, in your whole life, and of course, I'm being extreme by, by that definition, but it is an extreme thing. You know, now you're a pastor because you know how to exegete a passage. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, both of those are extremes, and, and I really don't feel neither one of them is good on its own. I believe that somewhere in the middle needs to needs to uh, uh, needs to happen for uh, especially upcoming immigrant pastors and uh Chet has done that Chet has um, has done an incredible job in training lay leaders and discerning whether they have the call to be a pastor uh and pastors also have been able to through Chet and in the beginning they had uh, associations with North Park and Fuller I, I am a graduate of Chet, and because of that, I was able to move on to go to Fuller for my master's and my doctorates. And um, Chet trains more lay leaders and more Latinos for the covenant than, than any other institution. Now, um, having said that, uh, you know, Chet also is limited to a bachelor's of, of ministry. We don't have a master's of divinity program. They do a great uh, orientation program uh, as well. and. Uh, the, the great thing about Chet is that it brings a cultural revel, relevance to uh, to our folks. Uh, they bring a, um, you know, we understand it. So, for example, one of the things that Latina churches struggle with is infant baptism. Because in, you know, that we kind of identify that with uh, Catholicism back in, in, in our home countries. And uh, you know we the extreme in the in the Latin countries is that Catholic you know whatever is Catholic is not good. Here in the states we have a very different uh, view of Catholics. We treat them as brothers and sisters. So part of what Chad does is it gives and it expands their 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 uh, their understanding of scriptures and how we as a covenant church because we are Chad is a covenant entity. So we walk with our Latino uh, uh, pastors and understanding what the value of infant baptism is and why we practice it and why we believe it's, it's biblical. And those are some of the beautiful things uh, that uh, that Chet has has been doing. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm very proud to be a graduate of Chet and having resources for that. But uh, and they, we Chet has expanded throughout the country. We have uh, uh, certain satellites throughout uh, the, the U.S., here in the Central Conference, we're hoping to uh, uh, to do a, uh, a much more formal satellite in the next year or so, and maybe even expand towards the master's uh, and towards the bachelor's program because we've only had the initial a uh, program here, and uh, it's exciting. It's exciting to be able to prepare people, but we need those kind of uh, uh, you know a lot of people do not have the resources to go to a traditional you know eight to ten year seminary to be able to get a master's degree, which is the, the norm for us here in the covenant. Uh, but being able to disciple people in the process is also very important. And uh, there's there may be a lot of churches that don't feel their, their identities covenant because they really don't understand, you know, what our values are and, our, and, and 
yeah, some of the the things that make make it the covenant. And uh, I think that's really important to do, specifically with the many Latino churches that are coming that are that are being planted now. That's good. I didn't know some of those things about Chet. I appreciate learning that yeah. <laughs> like that cultural formation. I, I I never thought about that. Tell us more about Alipe. Alipe or... is the Asociación Latina de la Iglesia del Pacto Evangelico. Say that three times, really, really fast. <laughs> I don't think I can say that really. <laughs> Um, Juana Nesta is our president, and she has done just a marvelous job in representing a Latino agenda. And, and, uh, and our Latino agenda is to be is to be included in the major conversations and be included in at the table. You know, we've uh, I, I, Latinos have, as I said, we've we've been the object of mission for a long time, and we believe that we we have what it takes to be part of the mission. We want to be partakers of the mission. And um, uh, Juan Anesta has, has done a really great job in advancing our, our agenda to be included. Uh, uh, I think that the Mosaic Commissions uh, have played an uh, incredible part in this in the past few years. Uh, I had the privilege of leading Alipe for three years, uh, a few years ago before I became the soup here. And we have over a hundred Latina churches in the covenant. That's, that's a, a, a huge accomplishment. Um, and uh, most of them have been uh, planted uh, through, through people that have had such incredible vision for, for ministry for Latinos. And having the largest minority in the U.S., uh, we, we really have a wonderful uh, missionary field here. You know, we're not sending missionaries to Latin America. We have a lot of uh, mission here in the United States. Um, so Alipe has also tried to develop a, a second generation or a 1.5 second generation paradigm of ministry because the fact is uh, Latinos, like, in, like most immigrant, uh, second generation immigrants, uh, we, we tend to lose our youth uh, to no church or to different churches because our youth now speaks English. They identify as, as uh, people from the States and uh, don't necessarily want to continue that. It, 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 studying uh, second generation, third generation, how the third generation wants to return to those roots, it's, it's, really, it's really fascinating. Uh, but uh, our children uh, don't necessarily want to have the three-hour service that we have. Most covenanters that I know would not want to have a three-hour <laughs> service. But, you know, I've been in services where the service has been three hours, four hours. I've been in an African-American service that was six hours. And they had to feed us twice, you know. <laughs> uh, but that's just a wonderful thing of the covenant. You know, we um, most people don't understand. Why do you need a three-hour service? You know, you know, I, I have visited 105 of the 111 churches here in the Central Conference. And it's been a just wonderful experience because you never know what to expect. You know, how long is the sermon? <laughs> 17 minutes. I don't think I can say hi in 17 minutes. <laughs> you know, and uh, in other churches, you know, people say, Pastor, let the Spirit lead you. And that's Pentecostalese for take as long as you want, you know. Now, but as, you know, my doctor is in, in homiletics. I, I, you know, I, I, I take very good attention to people and, and if they're not paying attention anymore, you know that that's it's time to wrap up. <laughs> and, 
But but that's the beauty of being able to be part of the association. So uh, we've traveled also to a lot of the Latina uh, covenant churches, and we call ourselves Latina or Latino. We don't use the the acronym Latin X, and though that's used in educational uh, settings, uh, we we didn't really have a say so in that in that name. Nobody really asked Latinos, "Is this okay?" And it doesn't go with with in the Spanish language. The X doesn't really go to that place. So Alipe has made a, a public statement saying that we would like to be to continue to be called Latino or Latina because you know it, it, either gender you know goes the Latina church or the Latino church. Um, so being able to to see a lot of the Latina covenant churches and how they thrive and have the deep under love for the covenant in what we stand for uh, has been really great. Now um, there's a lot of opportunities also because there's many more churches to be planted, and uh, you know the the workers are few, but there's a lot of seed out there that needs to be harvested, and uh, so the Alipe has done a really great job in uniting these churches. This past year, we had our very first uh, a historical first. We did our first peer mentoring for Latino lay leaders. And, you know, I don't know if you are aware, the AMA, the African-American Ministerial Association, has had that for many years now. And I've always wanted to learn from them. And, and I'm, I have great friends like Brian Murphy and Henry Greenwich and, and people that have done incredible work with the African-American uh, Ministerial Association. And we said, can you please teach us? Teach us how to do this. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We'll obviously have to bring our own cultural appropriation to this and, and you know, discernment. But teach us how to do that. And it's the result of, of several years of, of listening and understanding and seeing what they do. It's equipping Latinos to have uh, a voice in a larger scale, placing Latinos in our boards, placing Latinos in, in, you know, in places to serve. Uh, and, of course, having Latinos that represent the covenant church that are covenanters, that love the covenant, that want to uh, help the covenant become that multicultural church we so much desire to be. So that's a little bit about the the Alipe, uh, Alipe the ethnic association. I would say that a great example of of investing in immigrant churches has been the AMA. I briefly mentioned they've invested in us and they've guided us and they've not have not been uh, stingy with the resources. You know they have said this is what we've done, this is what you can do. Tell us how we can help. And um, I mean, that's just a great model. My last two questions that I have for you are, one, how do you feel like God is inviting the covenant in general into living into our multi-ethnic identity, especially in engaging and supporting and being with um, our Latino and Latina brothers and sisters? Um, And then the other part, my part two question is, what words of encouragement do you have for our Latino churches um, today specifically as well. You know, uh, the invitation that I think Latinos uh, would like to have for the greater covenant is that we are, we would love to enter into a relationship with other covenant churches. Mm-hmm. Language is an issue sometimes, but, you know, um, we we know liturgy. We know how what a service sounds like. And, you know, the as a local pastor, I always... Uh, wanted to have a mix of, of people into our, our life. And youth is really the best 
the, the easiest way to integrate church, I think. So what I did in Bell Gardens when I was a youth pastor there, uh, we used to uh, have the first covenant church of, uh, Korean church in L.A. come and be a part of our youth ministry every third Sunday. We used to call that the third Sunday service. We had uh, an Anglo, a predominantly Anglo church in Downey. They used to come. And then an African-American church from Compton, they would come. And a couple of other Latina churches. And, of course, Bell Gardens was mainly Latina. And we had this really wonderful uh, camaraderie and, and fellowship among different races. And, and no one was anybody. Everybody was, was part of the youth, you know, and, and became this, this wonderful event. Every, uh, as a matter of fact, when I moved on from that, you know, my, my farewell party was with the third Sunday. And it, and it was just an incredible event. We tried to do that something in San Diego as well, but San Diego doesn't have that many churches. They didn't have that many churches at that time uh, that were covenant. I remember our our kids going to the first church, uh, the Korean church of LA, and they gave us this beautiful spread. This 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 wonderful rolls and you know sushi and all of this that was prepared by you know this. I'm, you know, I'm sure it was great. I don't eat seafood, so I, I couldn't eat any of that. But my kids would not touch the stuff. They were afraid to eat that. I mean, like, these are people in L.A. I mean, this is not Mexico City. This is L.A., right? And they did not know anything about Korean food. And and, and it was a wonderful learning experience. So if I could, if you, I would say to the, the our covenant churches, if you really want to, Dale Lusk said something really meaningful many years ago. Dale Lusk is in Merch Ministries. And he was part of the reason why I, I, I got closer to the covenant because he invited me to check. Mm. He said to me, uh, well, he, he said, period, you know, in order for, for you to see the, the face of God, you need to do that through other ethnicities. Because we, we, we tend to see God in just a very, very shallow way in, in the way that he's manifested ourselves and our people. But going beyond, I think it's just really important for us to see how other people see God and, and understand their point of view. And uh, Covenant Churches, I would say, getting a, I have a church here in the Central Conference um, that, that you know, we're, we're not growing very much. They were pretty stuck. And one of the things that I said to them, would you be open to hosting a, a church plant? And in a Latino church plant. And, you know, I'm, I'm not as, as smart as I, as I think I am, but God is good. And the way that this, this fusion came is the Latino church came in with so much energy and, and their services and, and the things changed that, they, that the church that was not doing so good started doing better. Because there was all this energy and all this wonderful and this, you know, this noise and that was, that was going on and all these people coming in with food and the the, the church smelled great, and, um, and and I think that God is calling us to understand fellowship and being a covenant church and saying we're thirty, you know, we're thirty over thirty percent multicultural doesn't mean anything unless we have relationships with one another. So my invitation for covenant churches is if you really want to understand who God is and how people see God is to get in relationships with other churches. And uh, even, even churches, Latina churches would benefit from that because kids that would get lost after they graduate high school and they would want to go to a different church or not even go to church anymore. They have an English speaking church that they're connected to 
that is nor you know it's normal and organic and just natural for them to be connected there, especially if they have a youth group. So that would be my invitation: get to know your 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 local churches, not only Latino but but any other other churches. Um, I think you will find it refreshing and surprising how other people do that. I, I always joke that if I go to a Latina church, uh, you know, I, I have to take comfortable shoes because there will be some dancing. <laughs> if if I go to an African-American church, I know I'm going to lose 10 pounds because, you know, the service is just lit. You know, it's just, it's amazing. You, you They worship <laughs> so hard, you know, and if I'm preaching, I usually tend to preach longer in an African-American church because the energy is so great. I don't want to stop preaching. You know, people are just, it's just amazing. So we can see the face and we can experience God to our brothers and sisters that don't worship like we do. So, and the encouragement is that God is in the move and God is holding us out. We're accountable to one another. And we're, uh, that part of accountability is having a deep care and understanding for other people and, and being able to listen. I think that we can benefit each other from our interactions and, uh, we can benefit each other from being uh, better friends and better Christians together. And my the, the encouragement that I would have for Latina churches is, you know, uh, do not let that fire that God has lit in your heart uh, uh, be damped by other folks that may not be as open as you would want them to be to you. And uh, to the regular church, I would say, uh, the encouragement is that we want to we want to be friends we we're we're we wait we're waiting for an invitation we we want to be a part of that conversation and we want to be able to do that and uh you can tell who has those kind of relationships by the way when you when you hear somebody talking at an annual meeting or ex- explaining especially very strong views whether on and on anything you can tell whether they have minority relationships or not because if we do, we're going to have certain sensibilities for what we think is right and what includes them or not. So that's my two cents on that. Sí, claro que sí. Para mi gente que pueden estar escuchando esto, es, es difícil a veces poder eh, ser aceptados porque, porque tenemos diferentes lenguajes, nuestro servicio es diferente. Pero yo creo que la mayoría de la gente del pacto está interesada en tener una relación y una amistad con nosotros. Eh, les invito a que no nos demos por vencidos, sino que hagamos estas clases de conexiones, porque nosotros tenemos mucho que contribuir con nuestros hermanos y hermanas. One last question. It's a little bit more on a personal note. Um, yeah. Earlier, you mentioned that you were invited to check with your metal band. From what I understand, you are still a musician. And I believe, did you just launch a new album? I did. I, I did. I launched an album uh, in the summer called Colores. And, um, you know, I have been supporting an orphanage in Guatemala called Casa Guatemala for many years. And uh, when I was a professional musician, I, my album sales and concert tickets and all of that would go towards an orphanage. And I have not been able to do that since I became the superintendent because I just don't have the time. It is an album that that came out of out of having some extra time during COVID when you couldn't travel, and I utilized every Monday to go into the studio. And I didn't think I had any more music in me, but I did. 
And uh, actually, the song Colores is a very Latina song. Uh, it's a salsa song. And I'm not really a salsa singer or player. But the Lord had mercy on me, and it came out really well. <laughs> and the other songs are, are just really personal about growth, about, you know, maturity is who do you listen to. And, and if you really listen to good advice, because you can be f- full of advice, but if you don't listen to it, it's a different story. So thank you for asking about that. Yeah. So you can you can uh, uh, listen to that through any of our uh, the media platforms. Yeah. Awesome. So the again, the album name is called Colores. Colores. Yeah. And the thought there is uh, you have to judge people by their fruit. So but in Spanish, it sounds better when you call it by their colors. You know, if they show you their colors, believe them. And he came from a Maya Angelou uh, uh, saying, when people show you who they are, believe, believe them. them. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and he talks about, you know, the friends, friends that uh, they have to show you the good fruit if they're really friends and they need to be consistent fruit. So it's part of knowing who to listen to. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much. So yeah, well, everybody. Check it out. It's on iTunes, Spotify, all the places. Pandora, Apple Music. And Apple Music, yeah. yes. And right. Amazon. Yeah. Oh, yes. Nice. Well, blessings to you both. Well, thank you. Thank you, friends, for joining us for the Love the Cub podcast. We'll be posting new episodes every other week. If you're interested in sharing your story on when you felt like you were covenant, send us an email at lovethecove at cubchurch.org. Bye.